You're listening to Sage Spirituality. Reaching back, leaning in, and seeking out a deeper experience with God. With your host, Joel Marvin. Welcome to this edition of Sage Spirituality. I'm your host, Joel Marbot, and we're getting ready to continue our journey through the Gospels as we're walking through the Gospel of Mark. We're halfway through the Gospel of Mark, and we're continuing to reach back in church history. We're continuing to lean into the text as we go deeper in our relationship with the Lord. Now, I want to take a moment before we go into the text, and I want to thank you for making us more and more visible to those around us. Uh, We have no budget to advertise. We don't do anything off the charts. We do everything we do very low-key, and you continue to make us more and more visible to those around you. I I don't know if you're doing it through word of mouth or if you're just sharing it, you're subscribing, whatever you're doing. I want to thank you for making us more visible. Every time you share on Facebook, every time you give us a review, every time you like us or you give us five stars on iTunes, you make us more visible. And for that, I am incredibly thankful. Thank you so much for helping us extend our table and bring more people into our community. Now, we're going to pick up our text today, and we're going to read about a blind man that was healed in Bethsaida. Now, the text starts in Mark 8, verse 22, and it says this, And he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the town, and when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone in town. It's kind of a crazy story when we listen to it. You know, there's a lot of things to consider here. I've heard this text preached and turned around different ways and different aspects of it kind of pulled out of context just to get a good, uh, maybe a good preaching line or a good, uh, a, a couple of good sermon points in. But when I look at this text, I think there's something that's incredibly important to me. I see it. There's a redundancy in this story. First and foremost, I think about this man that was born blind. I, I cannot imagine living your life in blindness, especially in a time where there was not a sensitivity toward those who had challenges, those who had uh, challenges to overcome. You know, you go to major cities now, you go to a crosswalk, crosswalks are scheduled for people who are sight impaired, people who are blind. They sound beeps. Uh, You go to restaurants, every restaurant you go into, they have a braille menu. People have come so far in their development um, just as society has progressed. But think about 2,000 years ago, you're born blind, you're in a place you can't see, and really you have to depend on other people. 
And when I look at this man's life, I look at his example, it makes me think of something. It makes me think that this man has spent his life following. It's the story of a follower. Realistically, it has an application to all of us because in one way, shape, or form, we're all following. And it makes me think or ask the question to myself first. His friends led him to Jesus. He followed his friends to Jesus. And it makes me ask a question, where are your friends leading you? Every one of us have friends. The Greek philosopher Aristotle, he actually divided friendships into three categories. There's friendships of pleasure, friendships of utility, and there's friendships of of good. You know, he's when he talks about friendships of pleasure, these are the short-term friendships that we have that are they come, you know, they come from a shared hobby or an enjoyment, maybe sports, team, Maybe the person you sit by every Saturday at your college football stadium, if you have season tickets, I know that people get to know other people. Maybe it's uh, someone that you enjoy. You see them at a certain music club that you go to, and you enjoy the same types of music, and you see them over and over and over. Or someone you see at the gym, maybe you go to the gym, and they're there at the same time, same hour. And there's kind of like a friendship, but it's just a friendship of pleasure, very superficial. Then there's the friendships of utility. The friendships of utility are the people that come into our life due to benefits. Say people that we work with, friends that we're in business with, uh, maybe even people that we're studying with if we're going to university or going to high school, or, or maybe just doing research with someone that we come in contact with. It's utilitarian. But these two types of friendships, I think we can all say they're very passing. You know, it's like um, you sell those season tickets or that person sells their season tickets. You really don't see each other anymore. Or possibly you graduate from college and you really never see that person again. I know that's the case in my life. Some of my closest friends throughout my times in Bible college and throughout studying, they were good friends, but they were just there for a season. and. Aristotle focuses on that last group. He said they're friends of the good. These are the ultimate friendship, the most important of the three categories he breaks down. These are actually based upon respect and appreciation for each other. You both want each other to grow, not for your own benefit, for the, but, but really you're not wanting something from them. You're wanting something for them. You're wanting to see them grow because of the love you have for them. Now, Lev Vygotsky, he was a Soviet-era psychologist, very famous, died in the 30s. So he was he was kind of in his prime during the communist revolution in Russia. And he was a specialist working with children and he said this one little sentence that carries phenomenal weight. He said, "Through others we become ourselves." Through others, we become ourselves. Now, Dan Pena would say it this way, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Realistically, the people that we have in that inner circle, the people, the friendships, the friendships of the good, as Aristotle put it, those people that are in our life that are speaking most into our life, 
they're actually transforming us. They're making us who we are. Now, the Bible tells us this, Proverbs 13, 20, it says, He who walks with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. A companion of fools shall be destroyed. If you're running with fools, if you're running with people that are not pressing you toward a deeper relationship with God, then realistically, those people, no matter how much you love them, they're affecting you adversely. Now, another way that we can look at it is Paul said it this way, just very clearly. 1 Corinthians 15.33, he said, Do not be deceived. Bad company runs good morals. Now, I think it's very important there. He doesn't say good morals will change bad company. No, he says bad company will ruin good morals. Just, it's kind of like a stream that goes one direction. I know a lot of times we feel the need to, to get into the lives of people that we want to see transformed for God. But many times, if we're not careful, those people end up influencing us to go and, uh, uh, and do things or to think things or to uh, perceive things that we never would have if we wouldn't have had their relationship in our life. Now, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He said, true friends face in the same direction toward common projects, interests, and goals. Very important in our life to have people that are pressing us and pushing us toward God, toward who God created us to be. People who expect things for us, not of us. They want us to become everything that God created us to be. And I, I look at this man as an example. You know, his friends had somewhere down the line heard about Jesus or come in contact with Jesus or listened to Jesus teach or saw him do a miracle. And they had faith that if they could simply get this man in Jesus's presence, he would do unbelievable good for him. Yet, <laughs> it took this man's willingness to be led by his friends. So, in a relationship, we have to be willing to not only listen, but we also have to be willing to speak. Martin Luther King Jr. said it this way. He said, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. You know, a real friend will say an unconventional truth. A real friend will speak the truth in love. A real friend will look at you and say, hey, this is a mistake. I don't want to see you going down this path. And also a real friend is willing to listen to those words that are maybe uncomfortable. Maybe someone looking at us, telling us that what we're doing is not right. Or maybe challenging something that we feel like is an entitlement or something we feel that we should be able to do. Now, Henry Ward Beecher put it this way, if we're really going to if we're going to live a life with real friendships, we have to learn that there's no such thing as a perfect friend. Our friends are going to fail us. So how do we continue to cultivate friendships that are pushing us in the right direction? How do we allow ourselves to live in a in a relationship where there's open conversation yet we don't allow the rub to erase the friendship. And Henry Ward Beecher said it best. He said, every man 
should keep a fair-sized cemetery in which to bury the faults of his friends. Now, what that means is sometimes my friends that are pushing me in the right direction, they may say the right thing at the wrong time. Uh, and, and rather than taking offense, I need to be willing to bury that in that cemetery that I have for my friend's faults. Instead of burying the friendship, I'll bury the fault, and I'll keep the friendship. Maybe if the person says something that maybe doesn't sit well with us, or we open up ourselves to a conversation, and it rubs us just a little bit the wrong way, we have to be willing to bury that fault so that we can maintain that life-giving friendship. I tell my kids all the time, realistically, my best friends in life are those who challenge me. My best friends in life are those that, realistically, I don't always agree with, and they have a green light to come into my life and impress me on things that maybe no one else feels entitled to press me on. And I'm willing to listen to those, and I'm willing to overlook their faults because their friendship is much more important to me. They're life-giving friendships. Friendships of the good, as Aristotle put it. Now, the second question that I see concerning this blind man is, number one, he was a follower. He was a follower of his friends, as we all are. Show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Show me your friends, and I'll show you the direction your life is headed. But the second aspect of following was the fact that he was willing to follow Jesus. He didn't know Jesus, but he trusted him. And I want to ask you a question today. Where are you allowing Jesus to lead you? Where are you allowing Jesus to lead you? Jesus is not a, a, a coercive audience uh, or a coercive relationship. He's not the mafia. He doesn't come in and bust up kneecaps and twist off your arm. He's not like a, an, a he's not like the Sopranos or Goodfellas or or uh the Godfather or one of these places where he sends his heavies in to do his work and he gets you and manipulates you and sends you uh back to your room uh trembling in fear so that you'll do what he's trying to coerce you to do. Jesus always works through invitation. There's this lovely relationship that we see blooming between Jesus and this blind man in Bethsaida. And you know, the first thing Jesus does in the life of this blind man is he leads him out of the city. He leads him out of the town that he's lived in his entire life. You know, if you're a blind person, you kind of get the routine. It's kind of like waking up in your bedroom in the middle of the night, and you kind of know where everything is. You know where to step, what to step over, so you're not stepping and tripping over things. Oh, man, I've had times where I was in a foreign place or a place I wasn't really comfortable with, and I'd wake up in the middle of the night, and everything's completely dark, and I would knock stuff off the wall and go crazy. But, you know, if you're inside your own house, you kind of have that comfort zone of being able to walk around and move around and not have your full visual uh, capability. And, and that's what we're seeing here, is we're seeing that Jesus specifically, he led this man out of his comfort zone. This man was comfortable 
in Bethsaida. It was Bethsaida was a small town. I grew up in a small town, and you can literally I can close my eyes and almost navigate that town. But look at what he did. He led him out of the place he was most comfortable. Now, I I think it's something that speaks to us when John when we read in the book of John chapter 12 verse 23 through 26 it speaks to us concerning this Jesus spoke to his disciples this is the last week right after the triumphal entry and he said the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified most assuredly i say to you unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies it remains alone but if it dies it produces much grain he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, verse 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now, think about that real quick. I want you to think about, I know that's complex. Of, seed of grain falling on the ground dying that's that's Jesus dying resurrecting and as in his resurrection we're all a product of that because of his fruitful life but it also speaks to us because Jesus looks at his followers at his disciples at the believers at all Christians and he says listen if you follow me or if you serve me if you claim to be a Christian then what that means is it means you will follow me. It's just the bottom, most basic thing of being a Christian is following Jesus. It's not even believing. It's not repeating a prayer. It's not signing a church membership card. It's not being baptized and in, in, uh, in, in getting a baptismal certificate. The number one criteria of being a Christian is following Jesus. Now we see this example, this blind man. This wasn't a challenge to him. He had followed people his whole life. Yet some of us, we claim to see, but we're completely blind because we've never chosen to follow Jesus. Now, Phillips Brooks, he was a pastor about 150 years ago. He saw it this way. He says, we will never become truly spiritual by sitting down and wishing to become so. We don't wish our way into Christ-likeness or becoming Christ followers. You see, Jesus led this man, and when he led him, he led him to do something unorthodox and uncomfortable. He spit in his eyes. He, he did something completely unexpected. Completely unexpected. And then when he touched the man's eyes, and he, he, and he asked him if he could see what happened, he came back and he said, I see men as trees. So it wasn't like God did a one-time work in his life. I love this part of the story. See, Jesus is inviting us. He's leading us not to just a one-time repeat-after-me prayer, but he's inviting us into a progressive work of grace. He's inviting us to, to, to not just one-time story that, man, one time back 25, 26, 30 years ago, I repeated a prayer in a small church somewhere, and I signed a card, and they gave me a New Testament, or they gave me a Bible, and now I'm a member of that church. But see, Jesus is inviting us into an ongoing work. 
John Wesley actually called it. He called it the second work of grace. There's a lot of people that struggle with this aspect because it says, well, you know, once you get saved, you're saved. Yeah, but Jesus didn't come simply to save. I love what Puritan J.C. Ryle wrote in his book, Holiness. If you've never read a J.C. Ryle book, pick up that little book, Holiness. It will do you much, much good in your spiritual walk. So J.C. Ryle, an English Puritan pastor, they actually call him the last Puritan, he wrote these words. He said, if there is any point on which God's holiest saints agree, it is this, that they see more, know more, and feel more, and do more, and repent more, and believe more as they get on in their spiritual life. And in proportion to the closeness of their walk with God, in short, they grow in grace, as Peter exhorts believers to do, and abound more and more according to the words of St. Paul. Now he's quoting Peter and Paul, 2 Peter 3, 18, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 1. But how beautiful. He said, look, it doesn't matter what traditional church background you come from. It doesn't matter if you're Protestant or Catholic or Orthodox. It doesn't matter if you're Pentecostal or you're Baptist. It doesn't matter if you're Church of Christ or you're Methodist. One thing that God's holiest saints agree is that they see more and they know more and they feel more and do more and repent more and believe more as they get on in their spiritual life. And they do it in proportion to the closeness of their walk with God. That's so beautiful that as we walk, as we follow Jesus more, then our life will become more. It'll become more like Him. You know, that's such a powerful reality, such a powerful, realistic uh, vision that is placed right before us. This man, uh, what would have happened if this man would have said, hey, don't touch me again. That's enough. I can see people as trees. That's better than seeing nothing at all. That's like the Christian that says, hey, God, I want you to save me, but I really don't want you to change the way I'm living my life. God wants to do so much more than just give us a get-out-of-hell-free card. Another Puritan, John Flavel, he says it this way, did Christ finish his work for us? Then there can be no doubt, but he will also finish his work in us. He finished his work for us on the cross of Calvary, and that means he's also going to finish his work in us. He is bringing us. He is bringing us to this place, just like like J.C. Ryle quoted Paul and Peter, that we will grow in grace, that we will abound more and more. It's this growth that we're being invited to, and that comes from following Jesus. Theologian Wayne Gruden, he put it this way. He said, sanctification, this is another word, another word that some people would use for the second work of grace. Uh, John Wesley calls it holiness. Some people call it spirit and filling, whatever you want to call it. It's the second work of the power of Jesus Christ in our lives. Wayne Grudem said it this way. He said, sanctification is a progressive work of God and man 
that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. He's laying it out there. He's saying, listen, when Jesus came and he promised us abundant life, he's inviting us into a deeper lifestyle, not just to continue in the life we've always lived, but he's inviting us to a greater level of living. Grudem goes on to say this, there's a definite beginning to sanctification at the point of conversion. That sanctification should increase throughout the Christian life, and that sanctification is made perfect at death. That means none of us are not none of us are going to reach a level of perfection where all of a sudden we're no longer tempted, or all of a sudden we never have challenges in life, or all of a sudden everything comes out the way we've expected it to come out. People who tell you that are lying, and they're not biblical Christians. Jesus said we're always going to have challenges. Jesus said we're going to be persecuted. Jesus said we're going to be rejected and misunderstood. Yet one thing we can be sure of is that we can live a life constantly becoming more and more like Christ. Theologian or preacher, writer, F.B. Meyer, he wrote these words. He said, we go into the artist's studio and find their unfinished pictures covering large canvases and suggesting great designs, but which have been left either because the genius was not competent to complete the work or because paralysis laid the hand low in death. But as we go into God's great workshop, we find nothing that bears the marks of haste or insufficiency of power to finish. And we are sure that the work which His grace has begun, the arm of His strength will complete. Friend, you are a masterpiece, and God will not allow you to go unfinished. But the only way to allow Him to work His work in you is by making a choice to follow Him. Making the sober choice to put the right people in your life that are pressing you in your growth, but also in following Jesus, no matter what the cost is, even when it challenges you. Another great Puritan, John Owen, he wrote this phenomenal book called The Mortification of Sin. This is another great transformational book. I remember when I read that book, I, I, I felt like it was one of those books I just underlined almost every paragraph as I was reading it. John Owen says this, he said, let not men deceive themselves. Sanctification is a qualification indispensably necessary unto those who will be under the conduct of the Lord Christ unto salvation. He leads none to heaven, but whom he sanctifies on earth. This living head will not admit of dead members. <laughs> That's powerful. This living head will not admit of dead members. That means if we're not alive in Christ, if God's not doing a work in our life day in and day out, man, that's a scary place to be. How would a living God react to a dead member? Realistically, biblically, he says he cuts those things off that are not producing fruit, that have no life, and he throws them into the fire. And finally, I go back to J.C. Ryle and his book, Holiness. Just to close this and land it, he says this. He said, We secretly wish we could have a vicarious Christianity. 
and could be good by proxy and have everything done for us. Anything that requires exertion and labor is entirely against the grain of our hearts. But the soul can have no gains without pains. To be a Christian, it will cost a man his love of ease. That last sentence speaks volumes. To be a Christian, it will cost a man his love of ease. Just think about that. Are you willing to follow Jesus even when it's not easy? Even when it brings pain into your life? Even when he's doing things that are unorthodox? Even when he's leading you out of your comfort zone? Even when he's challenging you with everything you've held comfortable and dear in your life? I can promise you this. If you will continue to follow him, you will not regret it. But you will have everlasting life. I want to thank you for being a part of our community here at Sage Spirituality. Thank you for being a part of this conversation. I want you to share it. I want you to tag some people in it and allow them to come to the table with us as we reach back and we lean in and go deeper. God bless you. And we're going to continue this journey very, very soon. Thank you for tuning in to Sage Spirituality. We are so glad you pulled up a chair.